Welcome to this week's episode of From the Lighthouse. Today I am joined in the studio by Kim Kelly. Kim Kelly is the author of 12 books, including the acclaimed novella Wild Chicory and best-selling novels The Blue Mile and Her Last Words. She is a book editor and reviewer as well, because too much narrative action is never enough. Her latest novella, The Rat Catcher, A Love Story, was shortlisted for Viva La Novella 2021 and longlisted for the 2022 Historical Fiction Novel Prize. Kim lives and writes on Wiradjuri country in central western New South Wales. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I'm so looking to talk forward to talking to you about The Rat Catcher, A Love Story. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me on your podcast, Michelle. I would love to start off by asking you, how did the idea come up for such a wonderful story set in Sydney in, you know, sort of the turn of the 20th century on the wharves, um, rats galore and the bubonic plague? How did that idea come up? Well, remember that funny thing we had a couple of years ago that started called the pandemic? Well, um, it came to my little town uh, in central New South Wales and like everybody else, I was, um, you know, freaked out, worried um, about what was happening and what was going on uh, and certainly looking on at what was happening in Sydney the chaos that was happening in supermarkets and um, the, you know, resentments of people and what have you and the terrible, um, you know, uh, poverty that, that, that it was immediately inflicting on casual workers as well. And it also came eventually to my little town of only a few thousand people and I suddenly found that there was no toilet paper in the supermarket and no flour. I'd been locked down couldn't even make a cake, it was terrible. As a writer though, having uh, lockdown, of course, I, I, I think that um, many writers experience this, although some people um, had, a, had, some writers had a, a terrible time with it, but I certainly found the luxury of, of suddenly, you know, having no place to go um, quite wonderful. And uh, I was ready to get stuck into something. But what really worried me was the, you know, sort of uh, emotional, almost hysterical reaction we had to a medical problem that seemed quite logical on the surface to me. I mean, it certainly wasn't the bubonic plague. It wasn't sort of full of, you know, sort of uh, boils and, you know, uh, you know, horrible, terrible, um, you know, uh, physical, um, uh, well, it, it was terrible, but in, in a different way. Uh, but it seemed, you know, like so many medical issues that eventually that will sort itself out. It was the panic and the terrible ramifications that it was having for people, particularly casual workers, that interested me. And I wondered, how did we deal with pandemics past? And, of course, I immediately thought of um, the uh, Spanish flu that was the nastiest thing in the tale at the end of World War One. Um, I had done a little bit of research on that period for my very first novel uh, a million years ago and I didn't really want to go back there. I had some writer friends who were, you know, sort of rolling up their sleeves and getting stuck into research around that period 
as well. And then I remembered um, that the bubonic plague had come to Australia in 1900. So I'd read a beautiful novel by um, Ian Townsend called Affection. It was published about 10 years ago. But that was uh, set in Queensland. And I thought, oh, I wonder if it came to Sydney. And, and of course, it had, um, and, and quite dramatically so. And that combined with a memory of a story that my grandmother had told me about her older brothers, my great uncles, having caught rats in early 20th century Sydney for the council. You know, they got tuppence a rat. They were very poor men, um, very much down on their luck. And uh, like my character in um, The Rat Catcher, they were poor men from Tralee. So into my imagination steps this character O'Reilly, and off we went. Look, I, I have to say I am, uh, a, you know, sort of it, it makes so much sense that it was a story that was inspired in some way by the pandemic. And yet, given the amount of research um, that went into creating the rat catcher, because I think one of the things that really took my breath away was the degree to which you were able to capture Sydney um, at the turn of the 20th century, where I felt like I could walk those streets, see those streets, um, and not just that, but it was the richness of the, the world building, the sense of, um, you know, sort of the, the different pockets of, you know, sort of people who were trying to make their way at that time that you captured so beautifully. And, and I think above everything, it was this marvellous, um, you know, sort of narrator in, in, in Patrick O'Reilly, who was so warm, so endearing, so lively. Um, and there was this wonderful sense of playfulness, because as, as much as, you know, sort of we've got this uh, terrible sort of setting of, of rats and the, the bubonic plague and, you know, sort of a couple of wonderful um, descriptions of, of the, those, the, the, the boiled and the livid, uh, um, you know, sort of lips of, of Mr. Henkel. Um, you know, what, what, what there is is there's this wonderful sort of um, joyousness um, in, in being, and that, that was one of the things that really struck me was because I wondered how difficult it was for you to capture that voice or whether it was something that, you know, you did feel as though, um, you know, a Patrick O'Reilly channeled you because that, that was the feeling as a reader that I got that carried me sort of through it in a single sitting, I might say. Wow, that's lovely, lovely to hear. Um, well, you know, they say write what you know and I think it's very true in a sense of almost everything that I write. There's always some kind of personal connection to the characters I write, and never more so than with O'Reilly. He felt like a family member and he felt very much like a relative of my grandmother. In fact, I gave him the same um, last name. Um, she was such a delightful person, such a warm and kind person, and like O'Reilly, very humble. And she, all, she also had that sense of insecurity, that sense of social insecurity of never being quite good enough um, that my, my mother also had as well, that comes from that place of quite dire poverty that, you know, and bigotry as well that she experienced being an Irish Catholic person in Sydney um, during the early 20th century. Uh, she was really stung by it. So O'Reilly's voice very much springs out of a personal connection to my grandmother 
And she was one of 13, her older brothers, the ones who caught rats, who I never got to meet. So in terms of, you know, whether I'm channeling a voice or not, I'm not quite sure that you call it that, but that sense of personal connection, I think, gives me an easy authenticity in the voices that I write. I don't have to think about it. I can very much hear O'Reilly's voice. In fact, it's interesting. Uh, the audio book for the Rat Catcher is just about is has just finished production, and it was very difficult to get the right voice uh, because um, the lovely Australian actors who you know auditioned for it uh, they had lovely Irish accents, but they all sounded a bit too joyous and a little bit like leprechauns. And of course, you know. As you mentioned, you know, there are some quite low notes in um, The Rat Catcher. O'Reilly has to deal with some terrible um, uh, circumstances like Mr Henkel's death. He needs to be able to have those high notes and low notes. And so we had to cast somebody who was actually an Irish actor who could actually have that kind of, uh, yeah, that... Uh, um, diversity of musicality in his in his voice, but in terms of recreating Sydney at that time, I think right what you know comes into that side of things as well because I write almost exclusively Australian historical fiction. I'm interested in Australian history. I'm a real bowerbird when it comes to collecting stories. I'm an old newspaper junkie. I spend a lot of time on Trove, um, just enjoying myself there sometimes and, and going down, um, you know, sort of the rabbit hole of reading old newspapers if I'm interested in a particular idea or uh, a particular, um, you know, uh, social, um, historical event or political event or what have you. I'll foster in newspapers quite happily and it doesn't feel like work. And I also do a lot of picture research as well. So we think we know Sydney. Um, a lot of the, the action takes place, as you said, you know, around the, the uh, streets of inner, inner um, city Sydney and also the centre of Sydney as well around the Queen Victoria Building and Sydney Town Hall. And we think we know those areas because they're still so intact. You know, there's a lot of the terrace houses are still there. The Queen Victoria building is still there. But, of course, the guts of the Queen Victoria building has changed. Uh, so I will go to the newspapers and find out, you know, what stores were there on the ground floor of the QVB and that, you know, there was a public lending library there once on the second floor. That was like gold to me as a writer. It's like, yes, that's where my you know, sort of final dramatic scene is going to occur in the public lending library in the Queen Victoria building because everybody's going to find that as fascinating as me. Um, so, <laughs> which, was, which was actually absolutely true because I was, you know, sort of the sense of the QVB as a marketplace, you know, the sense of the QVB with that public lending library. And then, you know, sort of, I think also just the way you created all these really um, sort of powerful 
intersections with history. So, um, you know, sort of the, 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 the wonderful Rosie Hughes uh, is involved in the early women's suffragette movement in, in, in Sydney. So, so we have, you know, sort of these intersections of, or, you know, sort of the, the, the workers' union. Um, and all the way through we get, or just even, I guess, the authenticity of the feeling of, uh, you know, sort of the, the rat catcher and the public health, um, you know, sort of uh, organisation that was sort of in charge of rounding up and paying and dealing with the, uh, what was it? Was it, was it the fumigating or the um, ex exterminating sort of place that they had in, 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 in Bathurst? Was it Bathurst Street or, you know? And, and yes, the incinerator, yes, was there. Yeah. Yep. And, and so just this sense of, you know, sort of Sydney with its, so with such a different sort of set of functionality and, you know, and, and also, you know, sort of the way that um, you captured that, uh, you know, sort of really quite um, sort of, as you said, that, that sort of social conscience um, of just the precarity of the, of the impoverished who, because landlords were wanting to cash in, were, you know, sort of just emptying and demolishing buildings and leaving people with nowhere to go um, and, you know, sort of capturing your characters in those sorts of um, real life uh, moments from history made it all feel so, it, it, it really made me feel like I was living, um, you know, sort of a part of, of, of history. And, and, and certainly I, that was one of the things that I just adored about it. But, but I, I think that none of the research felt heavy handed, none of it felt like it was, um, you know, sort of because I think sometimes you can read historical fiction where it feels as though the, the writer has a need to show how much they know, <laughs> rather than using it strategically, just to, to build that to allow the reader to immerse themselves. And I think that's what you did so well was that it, it was it was there for me to immerse myself, rather than to sort of say, well, you know, I know this about <laughs> the history of Sydney, and, and when this happened, and the dates, and none of it got bogged down in that in that kind of detail but the other thing that struck me was that when I was thinking about the types of genres that were at play you know there was this wonderful sort of intersection with this sense of you know like that really um sort of good old Australian yarn in terms of Henry Lawson you know Banjo Patterson because the rat you know what is it with the rat like the rat it's almost magic realism like, <laughs> You know, what what is he like I believe in him you know he's 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 the wombat you know he's 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 you know like a, a sort of a May Gibbs character almost yeah. um and with so 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 far and, and of course the, the the wonderful um sort of humor of a rat catcher who actually doesn't want to kill anything at all um you know <laughs> so, so, so worst so. Irish joke ever <laughs> well, yeah, but it, but it did. When you when you sort of think, but I, but then also I noticed at the back because you did very generously, um, you know, sort of capture some of the, the places that you researched, and it, it did feel as though in your research it might have been one of those um, sort of occasions where truth is stranger than fiction and because it felt like the book on rats written in the in the 19th century <laughs> might might have actually sort of provided um some inspiration there what, what that yeah what tell me oh about it's the, oh uh, about old scratch himself yeah, the legendary scratch. rat yeah, well, yeah. Way, way, way back at the beginning, so this was October 2020 when the idea first came to me, one of the first things I do is go on to Trove and I start fossicking in the newspapers. One of the first things that I came across when I put in, you know, bubonic plague, rats, and I can't remember what the other search term was and I limited it to 1900, um, 
oh no, I think I went from 1890 to, to 1900 to see what was going on in Sydney at the time in terms of rats. And that wonderful story of, of course, he wasn't called Old Scratch in the newspaper. I made up Old Scratch as a, um, a character in his own right. But there was that very funny story of the rat who gets tossed overboard um, uh, on the ship, has a fight with a seagull on the high seas, kills the seagull, turns the seagull into a boat and sails off to Japan. I just, it was, it was just such gold. I thought. With the wing as a sail and the other wing as a rudder, you know, like so yes. you just got this image of this rat, yes. you know, sort of sailing the high seas. So I stole that almost verbatim, not quite, but I stole that from uh, what, whatever newspaper I, I had um, I had been reading it at the time. And it just grew from there, as you say, very much like, you know, a Henry Lawson story or a Bunyip. And I'm obsessed with that, idea, you know, that the great Australian novel, The Bunyip. I often have an element like that in any story I write that is just outlandish. But Old Scratch too, he is a figment of, of O'Reilly's imagination at the same time and he's a mirror to O'Reilly as well. And, of course, he's the, the creature apart from the real-life Rosie Hughes who he falls in love with. And I just love that pun, Rosie Hughes, for romance, rose-coloured glasses, blah, blah. Yes. <laughs> um, but, there's nothing like a good pun. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, plenty of facetiousness. Uh, but Old Scratch um, shows O'Reilly, you know, probably more than, than anything else in the book, his, his true worth because, of course, you know, a poor man from Tralee, as O'Reilly is, uh, he's been on the receiving end of not just limited opportunity but plenty of bigotry as well as uh, poor Irish people in lots of cities the world over um, experienced. And those forebears of mine, those great uncles of mine, certainly experienced that of travelling from one slum in Tralee and ending up in another slum in Sydney. And um, that kind of life experience is indelible for probably most people who experience it. I know that I've seen the effects of intergenerational poverty on my family and the way that the insecurities and that sense of not being good enough is, a, a, you know, a devil on your shoulder throughout your life or certainly a chip on your shoulder anyway. And it's certainly handed down to me. So I'm fossicking around in those ideas, wondering about where it comes from in me as well, this idea of not being good enough. So with Old Scratch, this, you know, wonderfully outlandish character, at the end, he morphs into a kind of a teacher for O'Reilly as well, who shows him that O'Reilly is indeed good enough. Because this was it, because, I mean, the fact that he ends up in the library sort of leads O'Reilly to his new destiny. Yes. Um, and, and so you do get this wonderful sort of enchantment kind of um, feeling as, you, as you're being led through the story while dealing with some gritty 
you know, sort of nasty um, incinerations and, and sacks of rats and, you know, all of those sorts of things. Um, but also just in, in terms of the, the fact that, and, and I think this is one of the things that a really good uh, sort of writer of historical fiction does is that they sort of manage to bring to life those, um, you know, sort of those social d distinctions that we forget about or that have, you know, has sort of translated into other, you know, because they don't tend to go away, they just tend to reconfigure themselves. And I think it's very easy to forget um, you know, just how much discrimination and prejudice and, and how real we saw it happening. We saw it happening during our pandemic, where yeah. people from the eastern suburbs of Sydney were treated very differently from the people of the western suburbs of Sydney. It's still in action. That idea that, oh, well, those working people who all have casual jobs that, you know, oh, well, you know, they're just sort of down the bottom of the pot. We don't love them quite as much as we love, you know, the people in the nice houses. And we don't, obviously, we don't consciously think that, but it's the way that we behave. It's a, it's a naturalised sort of behaviour, which is Big so... Dream. yeah. yeah. Um, and, and I think that was one of the things that you captured so well was, you know, sort of this, this sense that it... Because it's, it's actually in the social reality and the political and the economic reality of him despite having an education um, that was probably in excess of anyone else, simply by dint of being Catholic, Irish Catholic, he was not going to be employed. Um, and, and, it's, and, and those kinds of, um, you know, sort of entrenched or structural, you know, sort of prejudices and racisms that just, you know, have such a devastating effect. And, and they have that, you know, sort of very real ripple effect, you know, that does just tend to keep carrying forward. Um, and it was really interesting to watch O'Reilly grapple with that, you know, sort of esteem issue and, you know, sort of, because he does, he has wonderful rousing conversations with himself. Um, but, but, but you, you know, it, it is one of those things that, um, because of course you are writing in the 21st century, um, you know, and, and so you, you, you carry that with you into that story and, 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 and allow those, you know, sort of perspectives to, I guess, make that story more productive than it would be had you not been prepared to sort of carry, you know, sort of our very different way of looking at the world into that world. And I think that's one of the things that people who are interested in writing historical fiction often get trapped in is that they think, well, this is how people in that era thought, so I'm going to replicate it. But it's actually not about replicating that way of thinking. It's about remembering that you are writing as a 21st century writer. And that's, I guess, what breathes life into those stories and, and makes them, you know, sort of accessible to, to, to readers um, and, and also makes the, the history accessible and engaging to readers because there's no point in which we feel that, um, you know, sort of we're stuck in the rigidity of that way of thinking, um, which I think... We have to remember who was writing history as well. So when we're doing research for historical fiction, well, obviously we're, we're, we've learned to be, be careful of, um, you know, older iterations of, of history and, you know, sort of look at more contemporary research into areas. I mean, that, that speaks for itself, but we have to be careful too when, when we're reading newspapers as well because often they have a political agenda and a social agenda too that silences certain voices. Um, you know, if, if you're going to write about a poor Catholic uh, family 
in 1900, then you need to go and read some Catholic newspapers, uh, not just to, um, you know, sort of re, you know, reconstruct some kind of facsimile of, of what their life was like, but to hear what they were hearing at Mass, to hear the kinds of political opinions, and I include a little bit of that in The Rat Catcher as well, just to show that what's, what you're being told in the pulpit, what you're being told in the newspapers isn't really what's going on around your kitchen table. I mean, you know that yourself, you know, living today, what's going on in the Sydney Morning Herald, the, the preoccupations of the, the journalists and the, you know, editors of newspapers doesn't really reflect what your life is like. And because I write so often from the perspective of people who are really voiceless in history, the working class people, you know, people who work in casual employment, you know, of which there were plenty during our recent pandemic who, who copped it very badly as well. I'm trying to think, well, they live within a diversity of existence. Often we think about, you know, the working poor as being some kind of, um, you know, lump of people, you know, those people over there. Uh, they're certainly not to me. They're the people that I came from with all their diversity of opinion and their diversity of experience as well. When you're working on the docks 120 years ago, you're living with all sorts of people from all over the world that the middle class people reading newspapers and writing books and what have you have no experience of. So it's, a, it's very much a different it's a different worldview. So for Patrick to have his quite complex understanding of women, he is the only son of a very poor woman in Tralee. He has all these sisters. One of them had to resort to prostitution to get by while her husband was in prison. He knows how hard women have to work. Now for him to just carry the middle class, you know, women are nothing, idea is wrong and it's an idea that did, certainly didn't exist in my family. I come from a very long line of working women um, that, you know, even, you know, sort of going to university in the 1980s and what have you, I didn't have a similar attitude towards women that some of my peers had because the women in my family had always worked and had always been respected. So, you know, when we say, yes, we have to write historical fiction with the modern reader in mind, we also have to be open-minded about the different experiences that people in the past might have had. They're not figures, they're not static figures in history that have, you know, sort of leapt out of the pages of a history book. They're living, breathing people. And I think most of my work goes into creating as much as possible well-rounded characters, characters that feel real even within the strictures of their time because we have them too. They're just different. Because I do think that, um, you know, sort of, and actually what I'm thinking as I listen to you talk is just, I guess, how much really helpful information is contained in what you've just said for people who are interested in writing 
historical fiction because I think as, as a writer um, you know sort of actually a, a book is, is quite a um, it's quite unforgiving it's unforgiving of poor technique it's unforgiving of a lack of research it's it's unforgiving of you know sort of all sorts of things um, because we just have those little scratchings on the page you know there's no video there's no music there's no you know there's none of there's no actors to, to you know sort of help us through things it all has to come through a writer who who actually has to be across so much in order to sort of produce, you know, sort of, you know, sort of even a slim novel because it, it is a, it is actually a novella, really, isn't it? It's tiny. Um, it's it's a tiny, but the, the amount that you have to be across in order to be able yep. to um, produce that, and and I guess also, um, you know, sort of thinking through the kinds of things that put writers in positions to be able to tell those alternative histories. You know, sometimes it's lived experience, sometimes it's an enormous wealth of you know sort of research into archives, but always with that kind of critical rather than just, um, you know, sort of straightforward transference, you know, just that ability to, to, to really digest the things that, that, that you're reading. Um, do, do you have tips for people, um, you know, who are interested in writing historical fiction? Oh, yes. I mean, this conversation could go on for hours and hours between mm -hmm. us, I'm sure. But I think that um, I, I had a a, a wonderful um, advantage in coming to fiction, coming to writing fiction, after being a book editor for at least a decade. I had always wanted to write, but I thought writing novels was for magical people and much cleverer people than myself. I lucked out and got a, a job as, um, as a book editor at Random House and slowly found the courage and slowly found um, my voice and my reason for writing. And at the same time, I was also intensively studying novels by editing them. And it was only when I came to write my very first novel that I realised how much editing gave me in terms of understanding not just the machinery involved in writing a novel because there is a lot of craft involved and you don't know you don't know that when you're starting out you think it's magical you think it's very much um, about the power of your ideas well yes you need a powerful idea but you need a lot of technique to pull it off you need to understand how a novel works but at the same time I really think i came to understand that those novels that are most affecting are those where the author really needs to tell this story. It is a piece of them. And the reason why I think that works best, as opposed to these, you know, wonderfully stylistic novels that win all the awards and what have you, and there certainly is a cultural place for those wonderful novels. But the reason why a novel will touch a reader. That's, that's the magic there, that the author really needs to tell this story. And so they've naturally done all the work, the work on the character, the work on the story, all of the research, and they've done it from a place of really needing this thing to happen. And that transfers onto the page in terms of the energy of your words, the authenticity of your words, the veracity of the world that you create, 
all happens because you need it to be that way. And from that comes a respect for your own work as well because it's a part of you. So you want it to be right. You want the language to be right. You want it to reflect properly what's going on. But then you need to consider your pact with the reader when you're writing. And I think you mentioned earlier that I'm quite uh, light on when it comes to including history in my work, and that's deliberate as well. I'm also light on when it comes to describing characters. You know, I don't spend two pages describing how beautiful the heroine is or whatever, because part of my pact with my readers is that I give them just enough to create the picture themselves. And that translates to the streets of Sydney as well. I give them just enough so that their imagination can pick up. And so we're having kind of an imaginary um, conversation as my story unfolds and their reading of it unfolds. The story then ceases to be mine and it becomes the reader's. And I think that's, that's where all the magic happens, but it won't happen unless you've done the work. Look, Kim, thank you so much because you have actually put that so beautifully and you've, I guess you've said a lot of things that I actually felt in reading your book, which was that I did feel as though it was a gift for a reader. Um, and, you know, I did, I read it in a single sitting because I didn't want to stop um, and because it, 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 it was warm and it, it made me feel, um, it, it made me feel something that I, you know, sort of, I think that particularly particularly when we're sort of tired, there's so many worries um, in, in, in the world. And I think that, you know, sort of that uh, forgotten joy of reading a story that carries us away from ourselves um, is, is, you know, sort of a wonderful gift to the world. So, Kim, thank you so much for uh, spending uh, um, your time talking to us about the rat catcher and particularly for being so generous with all of your insight and wisdom. Um, it was just a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank you, Michelle. As ever, thank you so much for joining us here at From the Lighthouse. I hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please remember to like us at wherever you listen to your podcasts and don't forget to share your favourite podcasts with friends and family. See you next time.